In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. The talk today is titled, Farewell. Don't get your hopes up right away. <laughs> it's not a word we use much anymore. We say goodbye, or see you, or take care. Of course, farewell, an expression of good wishes at the time of parting, or marking someone's departure, which comes to us from the old English fair, journey or expedition, and the root willen, to will or wish from which will, to have a satisfactory outcome, is caught up in all the other expressions that have supplanted it. So a farewell looks back, but as in goodbye, which comes from may God be with ye, it looks forward to a good outcome. This Janus-like attribute of the act of leave-taking it's having to pull the past into the present for the sake of the future, expresses the gospel passage we have heard today. The conclusion of the 17th chapter of John, which is also the conclusion of a passage which has begun five chapters earlier, with the foot washing on Maundy Thursday, and will segue immediately into the move to the garden in the Kedron Valley as Jesus surrenders to that great machination which will take him to the cross. This whole long arc of narration in which Jesus tries to prepare his disciples for his imminent departure is known as the farewell discourse. John 17, the farewell or high priestly prayer of which we have heard the conclusion is therefore the farewell to the farewell. Jesus' petition for the unity of his own, the 11 of the 12 who remain faithful and his petition for the union of his own with himself. Throughout are woven echoes of the new commandment, the love commandment, which dominates the discourse. Farewells are not easy, as I have said. Not easy because they can be a mere formality, without feeling, which feels cheap and cold and disingenuous. But if feeling is involved, they can be extraordinarily difficult. Goodbye, after all, can mean good riddance. But if it means the end of something of which one does not wish to be rid, it can bring a pang of sorrow or literally tear the soul out of one. And sometimes the depth and intensity of feeling can come over one unexpectedly. If that sense of surprise is shared, it can be awkward or worse as humiliating a source of shame as some of us know. For love to be love, it must be one-way love. So I tell anyone that I deal with, let me love you as I may, as the boundaries that set us apart permit, but don't feel you must love back. It's not about reciprocity. Easier said than done, to set the other free from this sense of obligation and the social horror of having to fake affection that isn't there or choose honesty never assumed to be the best path in social situations. And look at the disciples as we have, especially last week. This is where they are, struggling to process in real time the love they know they are getting, 
but also the finality of the farewell. That's the real challenge for them and for us, to say goodbye to someone they know they will never see again, even though he's told them they will. Death does that. Never may never be never for believers who set their hope on heaven, but it can be a hell of a time, if you'll pardon the language, waiting if you'll forgive what I've said. Yet in that time, not mere interim, the acts of remembrance will become dynamic. The representation of Jesus through his disciples as they draw more to their number. Listen to him. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know me, I know you, and these know you that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. I'm a little hard on logic. From time to time, you understand the absurdity of taking that position, especially for a philosophy major. But these propositions are as prosaic as it gets. But put them together like this, and the result is pure poetry. The disciples are not ready to do any of this now. They have yet to come to terms with the worst that is to come. Their minds are tracking. Their hearts are somewhere else again. But in the days after the resurrection and the sealing of the Spirit on Pentecost, Jesus will knit heart and mind, action and passion as one in these disciples. And they will become a concerted force for farewell, the willing journey and goodbye, God being with them every step of the way. And every will will be a living into the future in prayer. This is important. The Holy Spirit is really all about our wills and the movement of the Holy Spirit within us that moves us to prayer is the ultimate expression of that will. The disciples are being drawn to their hearts where the spirit moves. They don't just have a story to tell, in other words, a papyrus full of talking points and an agreed-to narrative, cool and objective and laid out there in front of them. No, as this is prayer, they let the heart lead and thinking follow. What the will desires, or rather what the heart desires, the will chooses, the mind rationalizes. Melanchthon, written in Cranmer's commonplace books. It's the core of Anglican spirituality. What the heart desires, the will chooses. And then the mind comes along later and makes the best of it. Father Christopher Bryant says, the work of prayer is much more the work of the heart than of the head. By the heart, I mean much more than feeling, though feeling is an important factor in prayer. The heart includes the unconscious, the heights and depths of our being of which we are only dimly aware. The whole of us needs to be involved in prayer, not merely our rational top dressing, end of quote. As one who prays from the unconscious and often acts that way as well, letting the knowing unknown Detect the known, safe and familiar. I am aware of the risks one takes. 
Either the spirit is directing, even feeding one the words one will use, or other spirits are. One walks a narrow ledge and a slip due to fatigue or distraction or counter-transference can send one hurtling into the abyss and maybe taking another down with one. The way to repair and restoration is long and one may simply choose to forego it. The oneness that God gives in prayer then is shattered as well, maybe irreparably. The other option, however, that of being trained in the same safe, stale platitudes, cut and paste, leaving the spirit at a sad, safe distance is, to me at least, not my first or last choice. And as my time on this earth shortens, not even an option I will consider. Life is too short to do it from here. If we establish real stillness of heart and mind and really listen to the Spirit, God will give us the words. And the words will form images, symbols, the language of the heart, reverberating deep as opposed to abstractions apprehended by the head but leaving the soul unmoved. Again, Father Bryant, it is good that as far as possible, Head and heart should work in partnership. But in the business of of prayer, the heart must take the lead and the head must subordinate itself. Listen to the spirit then in the text we've been given in the revelation to St. John. Blessed are those who wash their robes, he says, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. This is language of the heart. We can read it and say, well, this is all the future, and this is all going to happen just like this. It's not going to happen just like this at all. It's something very like it, which only this, with its concrete everyday vignettes of women washing by the river, the trees transplanted by the living waters, always keeping the safety of the city's protecting walls in sight, scrubbing and scrubbing until the stains of sweat and toil have been washed away, the pure white once again restored to its pristine state. Sins forgiven relationships restored, things of God that have been soiled by our sinfulness now returned to their former glory. That's all very lovely. But how much better the language of Scripture. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. These are symbols doing the talking. And they talk to all of us. And their colors are so deep, yet their contours so clear like a child's drawing. They touch the pure heart at once. There is freshness, there is joy, there is hope. With the purity of that which I evoked, elemental images, water, washing, white robes, trees, the city gates, meant to hang, to hover in the mind's eye for a while, free and wild until the heart receives them. So in our prayer life, which is what life in the Spirit is, prayer without ceasing. We want that prayer to be symbol-rich, transformative, disturbing, provocative. 
That to which Jesus calls us is provocative indeed. He calls us to love, and love means love. No matter how you slice it, love means love. Jesus can't love through you if you don't love as well. If he doesn't carry your love with him as he loves, you've made the hollow Christian church which turns people away in droves. Do-gooders doing nothing for anyone. If he loves, he loves through us. But as he loves, he loves through broken people, broken souls. And therefore, love means risks, and risk means hurt, and hurt means forgiveness and restoration, and maybe even being stronger at the broken places. So, what has all this to do with saying farewell? And I'm saying farewell to this right now. This only. When we really say goodbye, and maybe for the last time, if we have time, from where do we pull the words we say. From the air, from the arid platitudes or conceptual conceits that clutter our thinking, or from somewhere deep down. This I know. We all will want to say the same thing when we suddenly realize that our time has come. I love you to someone, and thank you to God for that someone we loved. Who will it be, and how deeply will they have made their home in our soul, the home that leads us home? I hope when that moment comes, we know. I hope they know, too, and I hope they hear it from us before it's too late to say farewell. Amen.